It's Sarah time. It's Sarah party time. So uh, we're going to go ahead and continue on talking about Acts today. Um, And I want to start off our time this morning with kind of a vague question. So I know it's vague. So when you're annoyed by answering it, stick with me. We're going somewhere. Um, And so my question is, how do you view God and money in 2020? You have a great slide here to go with that. So if you want to go ahead and think about it in the comments, Kurt and I will try to do our best to look at them. I know that Kurt's comments are not working as well. So are they back? Unclear. I mean, I reload it and I get like three and then they disappear. So, you know, it's, it's my own cross to bear. This is the thorn in my flesh. That's fair enough. But that means Um, you can be on the spot. So you can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So how we view God and money. So I'm going to get us like kind of thinking and started. So what I'm kind of hitting on in 2020, and spoiler alert, I don't know that we know how to have this conversation well in 2020. I think we know to how to talk about what maybe we're against, but maybe we don't know what to talk about what we're for, okay? So ways that I think that we talk about money and God in 2020, some thought process would be like thinking through living simply. So there's kind of that movement that comes with Shane Claiborne. That's a little bit old now, if you know who he is. And he talked a lot about kind of this like simpler life, kind of pushing that thought process, right? Um, Maybe others have thought about God and money in terms of like, I'm going to give my money and finances to things that I'm passionate about. I think some people are really, really good at that. So maybe if you're, I'm trying to think of a great thing you're passionate about. Like if you're passionate about the Humane Society or if you're passionate about kind of like different nonprofits, like that's where you're going to give money. And that has to do with kind of your theology. Um, Other ways that we've talked about God and money has to do with like, financial conscientiousness. So where you're spending and why you're spending. So things like not going to Amazon, right? I really respect those of you that are like, I'm not going to support big business, um, kind of this, like this market stream. So you've kind of thought about like where and why maybe like the clothing that you're buying, maybe you're specifically thinking through like child labor and you're buying only specific brands that you believe to be safe um, in that arena, or maybe kind of like the thought process around buying local versus buying like big brands. So I hope that gives us kind of thinking, Kurt, do yeah. you have anything to add in kind of this like vague generalness of like God and money and ways that we think about it? And you can't. Yeah, think- I, I did see. So Brittany Muir, uh, said God and money, Hmm. Different species. God runs on a different currency. Money is a human thing. Um, oh. yeah, I, I mean, I think God and money often get confused. Um, so how do I view them is like this commingled uh, thing. I, I think some people supplant money for God because certain theologies, uh, God is there to provide protection and comfort and security. And that's what money in this world does. And so money becomes a substitute for God. Um, but I think scripturally, we see money as a tool, as a thing. And God is saying, how are you seeking after me and seeking after the thriving of all people through money? And so using it to see those who aren't seen uh, by society is an important way to view God and money. Yeah. Not Anything else you're seeing? Today. So 
What's nope. that? I said, and that's our sermon. There, that, oh. there it is. No. <laughs> okay. We, so Emily said, I think we struggle with teachings of both generous giving and being wise with money since sometimes those can seem opposed. Totally. Um, Camille, I think this is from Jonathan. Both can participate in awesome things and both have been used to control or harm people. I love kind of that thought process. Um, yeah. Anna, I think we should be spending our resources on the things that matter most to us. Totally. So my point is just kind of in this vagueness and owning the vagueness of this question is I just want to get us thinking and kind of noticing what happens as I start talking about money in a church setting. And I kind of put like that God and money conversation together. Like, are you the me that kind of starts to like, um, I kind of start to tighten up. So if you read the newsletter, um, I own, I like am the least likely person who wants to talk about these two kind of side by side. And I'll hit kind of on that later of why I think that happened. Um, but I think that this has been used sometimes as this like amazing and incredible thing. And also has been used as very like rule dictator. It depends kind of your background of how and where you've gone in that. But if you're like shutting down at this point, cause you think, um, I don't know that I'm going to tell you an answer. I don't have a great answer for you. Spoiler alert. But we are going to look at it pretty seriously in regards to acts and kind of how they talk about economy, money, and religion. So we're going to dive in. Kurt, if you wanted to go ahead and move. Sorry. I was taking a side glance trying to look at my iPad to see what's happening over the side. But I'm going to let people keep discussing. And hopefully we'll have the passage come up here. Oh no. Okay. So we're looking at Acts 19 verse 23. So got it. Kurt's so excited he's celebrating the background. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. And then we're going to look at this in three chunks and kind of break down what's happening in this scene and go from there. So about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, as you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So this is chunk one. And what I want us to look here is kind of set the scene of who and what's happening here because it helps explain kind of what's going to happen next and what's at stake. So we have a silversmith named Demetrius, and we're going to hit on kind of what it would have looked like in social classism, I guess, if that's kind of the right way to talk about where he would have hit in the um, who he is and why he's important in it. But so he's a silversmith, and they're talking about specifically Artemis. So if you would have been in Paul's day and age, if I would have said Artemis, you would have known who I was talking about. So Artemis would have been the largest pagan cult of its time. And Artemis specifically represented the goddess of fertility. Okay. And so here is a really great little fuzzy statue of her from our little booksies. And basically what have happened with Artemis is that there would have been these huge wooden statues around the city and specifically one that would have been carried on a carriage. 
and they would have adorned her. Like this would have been a very much celebrated, worshipped. This is a huge deal. This is like who would have been worshipped. So when Demetrius is talking about um, making statues, he's making smaller versions of this goddess. And essentially, it's not just like a statue for them, right? This is actually like a huge celebration. Two times a year, huge amounts of people would have been coming into Ephesus to celebrate Artemis. And so not only is this um, like a religion and way of life, but this is also an economy for these people. And so they are having like a tourist economy, economy essentially off of Artemis, right? This is like one of the seven wonders of the world. And if you were to do something poorly to Artemis, you could be condemned to death or um, really punished. So Demetrius's claims to Paul specifically, if you go back, you'll see kind of in verse 27, it's stating that he is actually endangering them in regards to Artemis. And he's making big claims about what Paul's doing. And then actually he should be in a lot of trouble for what's happening here. So two major things to see that's happening. Paul is threatening. And what Demetrius's claim is here is that Paul is threatening not only the economic well-being of Ephesus in money and business, specifically in kind of the trade and economy around this statue, but also the other important thing to notice is that the reason that the economy is kind of in distress is because of religion or Christianity spreading and is threatening the, the pagan cult at that point, which has to do with Artemis, right? And so these are two huge things side by side, which I want us to notice because what happens when someone believes that their religious or their kind of theological standing is being threatened? And that's what Demetrius is reacting and basically exploiting about these two things side by side, not only his business and his well-being, but also what he believes morally as well, his spiritual identity, I guess, if you would say. So Demetrius, who is he, right? They say he's a silversmith of some kind. I think that um, I tried to do a little bit of research on him and it's kind of unclear where he stands in the social standing. But I think the important thing to know is that he would have been not thought of super highly with like the super high up, like noble kind of background. He probably would have had a little bit lower um, lack of education, so socioeconomic kind of standing. And so he could have been seen as a marginalized member of the community, which I think is going to be important that we're going to hit on that later. And why I think that this is specifically important is if you were reminded of in biblical times, there's an honor and shame cultural standing. And this is for Demetrius. This is about his honor and, or shame. And he is taking a pretty big stand based on what he believes to be of honor, if that makes sense. So there's a lot on the line for Demetrius and we're going to see it's about to get crazy. So we're going to go to our next passage. Next part. So when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay. That's that pagan cult. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus. I don't know how you would say that. Aristocrat. I want to call him just aristocrat, but no. Okay. Uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province 
friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That's my favorite line, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So what happens here? We see the scene of mass chaos. So when we're talking about a theater, Kurt has a great, I think, image of it that hopefully isn't too pixely. And basically, there it is. This shows us kind of an example of where they are. So they've moved from Demetrius having a problem into a large space, which can technically host like 25,000 people. But I don't think that this scene has 25,000 people. So let's not kid ourselves here. But I do think that there is a lot of people angry. And I love the line where they say, like, some people don't even know why they're there. Like, I think it's a little bit like they see the thing happening and they're following along. Hard to say. But so, but essentially what happens is that this has become a huge issue. And so what happens is that they grab two disciples who aren't even Paul. So we're in Acts and the Demetrius is mad at Paul. He's kind of like the person he's saying is spreading and doing the crime. They can't find Paul. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. And so then they're like, you know what? Let's just grab the next closest thing to Paul. Let's just grab two of his disciples that Paul baptized because we don't know who else to be mad at. And so they put them up in front, which you got to imagine they're like, oh, this is a bad day to have been baptized by Paul. Not a good day. So then they're there. And then it even gets better because it's just like mass chaos. And then what's happening is that the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people are basically saying those who are um, kind of in that column of faith, they're saying, yeah, okay, let's push our leader up. So they push up Alexander, who they don't want to have talk either. And so we've entered into mass chaos. Okay. And the thing to note is that Paul talks, you kind of see this thing where Paul is trying to come back and the disciples are like, don't come. It's not safe, right? Don't, don't do it. This isn't a good place for you. But more notably that it says that the, um, the officials also, officials of the province also don't want him there. And why I think that's critical to note is that while Demetrius is claiming some major things against Paul and you start to see Christianity is essentially moving and it's spreading, right? But there's, so there's a threat that's existing, but also you've got these officials who are not threatened by the existence of Christianity, if that makes sense, that those are both happening side by side. And so I think that's really critical as we think through kind of what's the threat and why is it the threat and kind of what's happening in that scene, okay? So we're going to go to our final our final countdown. Before we get there, can we just talk for a second about how they yelled in unison, <laughs> great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Yes. I feel like we just go right over that. That is a hard thing to chant. And that's a long time to chant it. And that's all I really have to add. To this I feel like if you said greatest Artemis, at some point your tongue twister would have happened. And then you're just yes. saying greatest art, right? And and how did they chant it? Like great is Artemis, clap, 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 clap. Of the Ephesian. I mean, I, maybe that could last a little longer. I think you have a new calling in your life. As a wonderful oh. counselor, I think you should move towards <laughs> 
Next Sunday, we will be using things. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final chunk. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. I, side thought, I want to be BFS with the city clerk because she's just like, I believe the city clerk is a woman, although I know it's can't be it has to be a male but if we insert as a woman i just feel like she's like hey no thanks bye so there we go okay um you have brought these men here though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess if then demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. But bye We need to turn the debates. Man, I heard, but it's him, whatever. Um, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. There we go. We have gender, unfortunately, is for sure a male. So all of this to say, um, basically what happens here, city clerk comes in and is like, see all this mass chaos? No go. It does not fit. Demetrius, essentially, you're wrong. Paul isn't doing the things that you're claiming. It doesn't hit the thing where he can get into huge trouble, which you got to think that the little Paul disciples took a huge sigh of relief when the city clerk stepped in because they were like, good news. We will stay alive another day. Everybody going to stop following Paul. Right. And so then what happens is that we see kind of this court system and the suggestion of court system, which I just love that like these court systems are existing. They're like, we have protocols for this and you're not doing it right. And so we need to move towards protocols or be done with this riot, which everyone seems to kind of just like, and that's that. And that's where we go. So what's important to note from these three lovely chunks of acts, okay? So the first thing that I think we have to know is that Paul um, is, we're going to start getting introduced to a Paul that's going to be struggling quite a bit here in the, like the next little bit. Paul's ministry, and there's kind of this shift happening here. And specifically, this is much less about Paul himself, right? He's not even a main character, like he's being talked about, but he's not there if that makes sense, is much less about him. And it is much more about the way, which is what it starts in that first passage, which sounds very culty to me, but, or it's like, Kurt, what's the book? Remember the show came out of it. I really liked the book. And it's like the, it's like the, they're wearing like the bonnets. Do you know what I'm talking about? Handmaid's Tale. Thank you. It feels Handmaid's Tale to me. Cause I think they say the way in Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Anyways, point being, it's much less about Paul and what he's doing and much more about the social movement and kind of what's happening, right? There's some transforming things that are happening, formative things around Christianity, okay? Uh, the other kind of key thing to notice is that the church is starting to set themselves apart kind of from like Jewish culture around temples and sacrifice and priests. That's kind of, we're moving away from that very clearly and we're moving towards a much more like who God is going to be to these people and who Jesus will be without Jesus being alive, if that makes sense. So there's kind of a clear movement that's happening here. 
Um, the last thing to know is that Luke, our great little author, um, he would have been all about that it's really difficult to love God fully um, while mixing with grief, at, or not grief, with greed. So sorry, wrong word. <laughs> So it's really hard to fully love God while mixing with greed. All of that to say, Luke has an agenda here. Do not think that this story doesn't have a little bit of a backbone of an agenda to prove to you that other religions or other kind of groups that are going about the same thing at this time, they are not hitting the mark for what Luke is trying to show. He wants it to be very clear that greed, money, that is not going with following Jesus, okay? And so I think we just have to see that, know that, move forward from it. All of that to say. Um, I would love to say that money and religion is only a problem in Ephesus and with the Ephesians and that this is like Demetrius's whole thing. Um, but we know that's not true, right? That social and cultural, the way that we live our lives and how these two interact and intersect, it's still something that exists today in 2020. And so that's why I started with that vague question, because I wanted to know what comes up for you, how it feels for you when we start kind of hitting and talking, because this is an intersection point, right? Economy, money, God, how are we going to think through and process these? So we hit kind of on some of the different claims we've made over the years, right? You could have that Shane Claiborne, Mother Teresa, Desert Fathers, right? We've seen this over and over in history. So if you think that this is a new theory of like, we're going to reject, not do this, but we're going to do this instead, that whole mentality, that's not a 2020 thing, okay? That's something that comes from the early church. Luke is trying to show you we're rejecting what's happening over here, but we're going to do this instead. Okay. And that's something that's continued to happen. So desert fathers, they want to have a really simple life story style. So they're going to go off into the woods and like, maybe they come up with a whole Enneagram. That's one of the arguments of what the early desert fathers do, but like, maybe not, who knows, but like, you just imagine, right. They're trying to live a simple God, like very centered lifestyle. Right. So that's kind of one way we've rejected and kind of come up with a new style, right, over the years. Right, other things we've done is we've said, well, if I'm going to make money, I'm going to be generous with it, right? And so we've done our best with generosity, whether that was around different theories of what that meant or how that happened over the years, right? People have done that. Um, we've also kind of bought into, like, at times we've had, like, prosperity gospel messages, right? So, like, God has blessed me, and therefore I have all this money, right? And so like how you go through and process that, um, hard to say. Other times we've had more like rule-based theories around like tithing and it needs to be 10% and like we're going to be really rigid around this, right? And so my point being, again, like I don't, I don't have an answer for you, but notice you've been taught or bought into kind of these different theories and ideals over the years. Those have influenced how you yourself handle or reject what you're doing in this conversation of money and God. We're doing both of those things kind of side by side, I think. And so instead of just saying what we're not doing, I'm interested in kind of like, so what are we doing? Right, and what I think is key is that when someone's financial stability is threatened by their theological beliefs, and I, I kind of want us to think through that and discuss that, right? So what happens? 
when we threaten those two side by side. Here's my best example in my own life of where this has happened. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, often what was being talked about was that pastors should be bivocational. And essentially the thought process was like, you can't make a living being a pastor. And um, as we've moved away from kind of like what our rigid tithing rules are or are not, and then actually what the better plan is, is that if you're bivocational, you're not depending on kind of like the church and that being your source of income. And um, I sat there and it was like, as Cascade was starting, right? Which um, as a church planter, I can't tell you that it's not like you have huge financial stability in those um, first early months. But I can say that I was sitting there feeling like as someone that was hoping to be paid by a church, that what they were talking about was a threatening conversation to me, if that makes sense. And I would notice within myself defensiveness or um, a wanting of like honoring almost my own hard work, if that makes sense. And why that was happening was because my own financial stability was being threatened through that conversation. Because many other people that were having the same conversation in fact, really all of them at that point, none of them worked for a church. So it was easy for them to kind of spin this thought process and this idea around, but their actual own financial stability was not being threatened by the conversation, if that makes sense, by their theological belief that they were sharing. Okay, so that's kind of my example around that, because I know it's kind of an also tricky question. Other ways that I think that this happens, as I've just been trying to brainstorm, and Kurt and I both were like, hmm, that's kind of a hard question. Uh, when we talked about on the phone a couple weeks ago, but like, if you think about, um, like if you were in more like the oil business or, um, less sustainable kind of energy options. And I say to you, I read Genesis one and hear an emphasis on how we care for creation, kind of presenting my own like echo theology beliefs. I'm threatening someone else's financial stability based on my statements, if that makes sense. Things, there are things that lost by my own um, kind of presentation of my ideals, which by my own standing, there's very little loss, if that makes sense. So that's what I'm trying to hit on. The thing that threatens us, so I want us to look less at like out in the world and look at within our own systems, if that makes sense. When I share this story about being pastor and being in seminary, the thing that threatens you and kind of what does that do? And when you feel that defensiveness rising and raising, like, why is that? What's the theological belief that's being threatened? And why I want to hit on that is that we can all agree that in 2020, financial and social systems that have been created have huge discrepancies. There is not fairness or, um, you know, we can look at systems and how they come into place and how it, uh, you know, like education or college, it's not free to everyone. So there's just social standing there. Healthcare, if you start listing these different concepts, we can see that there are things that are not the same. Our systems are not equal. And so I think it's key that we have to look and keep evaluating them. Um, Kurt, is there, can you see, is there someone that, I think Anna has one, right? Yeah, Anna just said unexpected layoffs come to mind. Uh, thinking you are doing good work in the world and then not being able to do that anymore and losing financial stability at the same time. 100%. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a super great example. Yes, thank you, Anna. So kind of thinking through that, and I think it's vulnerable. So I, I think it's easier to look at 
like it's much easier to share the oil system. I'm like, I don't know anyone connected to the oil business. So that feels not personal to me, um, unfortunately. But I think it's harder to kind of like look at a system that is actually our system, if that makes sense, and my own financial implications. Does Leroy have one more, Kurt? Yeah, there's a weird theological mindset that says if you are poor, you are in need of God or you don't know God. This has created a social system of missions. Yes. Perfect, Leroy. That's a great example. And that kind of perfectly moves us into kind of this thought process or this theory of constructive theology. And essentially what constructive theology says, is not super complex, but it says the concept that over the years we've created theological ideals using the Bible and cultures that have become absolutes. So if you think about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, this is kind of similar that like what influences our worldviews. And, and this is taking basically half of those and saying, we're looking specifically at how Bible and culture play together and have created absolutes within our lives. So examples of that are courage. Here we go. Um, God is king. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean that this is like, bad language. I want to be really careful of that. Although um, some of them I think are more detrimental than others, if that makes sense. So I'm not trying to say this is all bad, but this is kind of how this influences this constructive theology thought process. Okay. So God as King has endorsed monarchies over the years, right? That's why you see people move towards like kind of kinship or kind of changing that language around over like reigning dominion, all of that. Um, God as father has been endorsing to patriarchy and hierarchy over the years, right? God as creator has led to endorsing the idea of dominion over creation and exploitation of people, right? And animals and things. God as provider, which is kind of the key final one in this, which kind of hits on what Leroy was saying, which is it can um, reinforce, one of the ways it reinforces is this idea of the prosperity gospel, right? And so if I pray and God has provided for me, then like this must be God blessing me, which I would then say to you, why is God not blessing someone who is in so much need as well? Like that's, that theology just doesn't shake out, if that makes sense for me personally. So these are the ways that we've kind of taken constructive theology and we've made it our theology, if that makes sense, instead of seeing the ways that we formed and reacted. So what are the ways or what things have influenced us if we looked at constructive theology and we know that theory and we kind of hold that in mind? How in 2020, essentially, do we now say we're going to construct and acknowledge kind of our biases and the systems that have led us here? How do we talk about money and theology? Right. And I think what is so key, if I could land somewhere, is what we see over and over and over in the Bible is that God is for the powerless. Right. And that I think we have to continue to point out those voices that are being pushed to the margins. So what I mean by that with financial means specifically and God and money and how that works together, right? I continue to think through like how are people, gentrification, people of color in the city of Portland, how are people being continued pushed to the outskirts of the city essentially and being pushed into worse economic or environmental standards? We can see that within cities that that's occurring. Portland is not above that, right? And we know that gentrification and all the different influences of that have happened, right? Another really, I think, kind of in our face example right now in Portland specifically is how do we address homelessness um, that continues to grow, right? Just the other day, I was um, 
I'm trying to get onto 26. So, you know, kind of by the hospital, I'm trying, whatever, it doesn't matter. But so I was over there and someone was holding a sign that struck me that just said, I don't know. And I, um, it really took me off guard, if that makes sense, in terms of like, how am I interacting with homelessness within Portland? And then just a simple answer of like, I don't know. Like the sign had nothing informative and I was so moved and drawn in by the awakening for myself of what was happening as I was sitting in my car and driving in like in a heated car and it was cold outside. And then I watched his dog um, like eat something that like looked like someone had given them. And like the dog just seems like so hungry. And I, I don't know how to explain, like I've seen many homeless people within this city and I'm still trying to process and decide like, how do we interact with this better? But I just was so moved by this dog and this man and this sign and just felt this helpless feeling of like, I personally want to have a better theology around how I'm thinking about this because COVID isn't going away. Loss of jobs isn't going away. And I think that this interaction is just blaring and in our face. And so my point is just how do we continue to address and look at systemic issues because money and economy, if we can't talk about that and how it interacts with theology, that's at our forefront. That's just a huge and detrimental systematic issue if we're not willing to have the conversation. At Cascade, our whole thing, right, is safe to be, safe to grow. And so I want us to be safe to be in regards to safe to having this conversation. Um, but the second piece of that safe to grow, which I think is the harder point of this conversation, is that how do I recognize in my own growth the ways that I've just maybe avoided money and theology conversations, or maybe I've just reacted. And so I've said, well, it's not that. So I'm not sure what the other side is, but I know what it's not. And I would just continue to ask us to push and to lean as we see these huge systematic events and problems right in front of us that I think asking us to be safe to grow is to not just saying what we reject, but also moving in a direction of what then are we for? Because um, I think that's the key piece of when we continue to grow and move. And I hope that that means that like having conversation about God and money isn't about having the perfect answer, but it's about putting that conversation first of if God is for the powerless, like, how do we continue to point out those voices and how do we keep moving in those systematic changes? So that's enough money talk for me for pretty much forever. So. <laughs> that was so good. That was helpful. Uh, another, another thought that got brought up uh, that your sermon oh, yeah. uh, sparked was from Brittany talking about Dave Ramsey. Uh, who, if you're not familiar, is uh, a person that, that talks a lot about get out of debt, stay out of debt, and links it to what he calls our biblical principles, um, which getting out of debt and not being in debt are by no means a bad thing or against the heart of God. But at times, it's not, well, fundamentally, it is not uh, investigating enough what are the systems that allow some people to profit off of the debt of others. What are the systems that push people into debt? Why are they in debt? 
when a lot of Dave Ramsey's um, idea is that it's just making bad decisions or irresponsible decisions, not things like generational poverty, not things like gentrification, not things like, quite honestly, prosperity gospel and how that plays into what people own. Uh, and also shout out to Andrea Menz is saying one way that we can take this message when we talk about financial uh, ideas and theology is to vote. Um, and wherever you lean, put that into practice in the ways that you were voting this week, if you haven't voted already. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, true. yeah, thanks for summing it up. You know how it is. You like get on your track and you're like, I hope this makes sense. But yes, what we were saying, that's what I was trying to hit on. Yes. Oh, you did all the work. It was great.